Hello and welcome to Halfway to History. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Kylie. And this is a show where we talk about the upcoming week, but a long time ago. And sometimes not so long ago. Yeah. How not so long ago are we today, Kylie? Today we're actually going to stay a little closer to home, both in geography and in timeline. Oh, I think this is one that I had suggested at one point, and it has now finally cycled into your weeks. Yes, it has. It has made its way full circle. So we're taking a quick trip over to Boston Harbor in 1999 when we were both just seven years old. Boston. Boston. Actually, if if we were seven and this was in Boston, I literally was living in Boston whenever this happened. Oh, yeah. Good point. Yeah. Anyway. Not living, living, but spending quite a bit of time at the at pra- the hospital with my brother, practically living. living. So, this episode's topic is the Deer Island Tunnel disaster. So, it's going to be a little bit of a downer. So, first things first, a little background on the Deer Island Wastewater Treatment Plant and the history of Boston sanitation, or lack thereof. Uh-huh, lack thereof is a very good way to put that. <laughs> so, waste removal was pretty much a free-for-all up until about 1884, when the first sanitary sewer system for the Boston area was built on Moon Island in the harbor. This system collected raw sewage and discharged it 500 feet offshore with the ebbing tide, so that the sewage would then get pulled further out with, with the tide as it receded. Mm-hmm. In 1889, the Metropolitan Sewerage District was established, and over the next 15 years, the agency built one of the finest regional sewerage systems in the country. Although it did still discharge the raw sewage into the ocean. Yeah. So... Finest around. Finest around. But still in the ocean. Uh Uh-huh. So by 1940, there were three separate stations where the sewage was collected and discharged. Moon Island, Nut Island, and Deer Island. Unfortunately, so much discharged sewage had contaminated the shellfish beds in and around the harbor. So discussion began about building treatment plants. So, like, treat the sewage before it gets dumped into the harbor. Mm-hmm. Like, maybe you should have been doing beforehand. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, in 1951, the Nut Island plant opened, and then the Deer Island plant in 1968. And the Moon Island plant was converted to a standby um, in case of, like, an overflow situation or too much that the other plants couldn't handle. In 1985, the Metropolitan Sewerage District was reorganized into the MWRA and initiated a program to protect Boston Harbor from pollution following a 1984 federal court ruling by Judge Paul G. Garrity in a case brought under the Clean Water Act, which Boston was, like, not following at all. So. Uh-huh. <laughs> the MWRA completely rebuilt the treatment system between 1985 and 2000. Now the system treats all the sewage, which is then discarded at the seafloor nine and a half miles from shore. Deer Island is the second largest sewage treatment plant in the United States, which is pretty impressive. So now a quick dip into the history of Deer Island itself. From the 1880s until 1991, the northeastern side of the island was also the location of the Deer Island Prison. Once known as the Deer Island House of Industry and then later the House of Corrections, it held people convicted of drunkenness, illegal possession of drugs, disorderly conduct, larceny, and other crimes that had a relatively short-term sentence. House of Industry is a really weird way to put that. That's because it wasn't a prison then. Oh, okay. It wasn't a prison then? Nope. So the House of Industry was established in 1853 as an almshouse. Are okay. you familiar with an al- what an almshouse does? Like- I, I know what alms for the poor is because <laughs> alms, of Robin alms Hood. For the poor. I'm assuming it's a poor house or basically, like a halfway house. Yeah, basically it's a poor house where like um, the idea was to put 
put people who were not benefiting society, quote unquote, in a place where they could do work, industry, um, in order to benefit society. But the problem with most of these types of houses is that it was basically like you were put in there and it was then, like forced labor. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And then just kind of left to rot uh-huh. because you could never pay off like whatever debt to society you owed. Right. Like it's it, you already did damage to society and now you were in these places for the rest of your life to pay off this damage. It's just a prison. Basically where they, you know, f- yeah, basically a prison, but wasn't technically a prison. Yeah. With all the well, their their crime was against society, was being not poor. against law. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> um, so it was an almshouse to begin with. It was one of several efforts on the island to accommodate poor children and adults. So kids, yep. were in here too, which is not great. Um, however, around 1880, the House of Industry somehow transferred from an almshouse to a legitimate penal institution again for the poor. Um, An article in the National Frank Leslie's Sunday Magazine, printed in 1884, described the prisoners on Deer Island in the 1880s. Quote, They in the main are from the lowest stratum of the cosmopolitan society of New England's metropolis, embracing representatives of almost every nationality under the sun, and from the shortness of the sentences, many being confined for 10 days only for non-payment of $1 in costs for drunkenness and none for more than a year. So if you were sent there, it was for... What would now be considered a pretty low charge, like we wouldn't even call it a felony anymore. It would be more of like a petty crime. Yeah, like a misdemeanor, something yeah, that you would that's, pay a fine for. Yeah, that's the word I was looking for, misdemeanor, yeah. So people sent here, the sentence was never more than a year. Um, sometimes it was literally like 10 days. So it was pretty low stakes, but it also meant that it very heavily impacted the poor populations in the city because that's the only people who were sent here because anyone who could afford to pay a dollar— Paid the dollar. Right. <laughs> Whereas people who had no money couldn't pay off a dollar. Yeah, they would have to go to the forced labor camps. Exactly. So in 1896, the House of Corrections in South Boston began transferring inmates to the facility on Deer Island, which became known as the Deer Island House of Correction, like officially. The last inmates were transferred from South Boston to Deer Island by October 1902. And following this transfer, the island facility was managed by the Penal Institutions Department and then later the Penal Commissioner of Boston until 1991. Um, And that's when about 880 inmates were transferred permanently to the Suffolk County House of Corrections in South Boston. So it was kind of like they moved from from one prison in South Boston to Deer Island. They built a new prison and then moved them back, essentially. Okay. Yeah. So the Deer Island prison buildings were then raised in 1992 to prepare for the construction of the wastewater treatment plant. Fun fact, there's a couple of notable inmates of the Deer Island prison. Ooh. One is a woman named Margaret Brown, and she was a thief, but she was known as Old Mother Hubbard. Mother Hubbard. Like like the nursery rhyme. Yeah. Old Mother Hubbard. And I literally cackled when I read that. So the other... Was Mark Wahlberg. <laughs> That's why you were asking those <laughs> questions the other day. I did not realize it was associated with research for our fine podcast here. Yes. Yes, it was. <laughs> uh-huh. 
Mr. Wahlberg has tried to separate himself from all of this stuff uh, for quite a long time, but Kylie actually had no idea. I didn't. I had no idea that Mark Wahlberg had a very shady past. Yeah, that he had a few run-ins with the law that were entirely his fault, and he was a very big racist. Yup. Mini, I guess this is a little mini sewed for you. If you didn't know that Mar- Mark Wahlberg was a huge racist and was, might not entirely be a, go- a good descriptor, might might still be is, we do not know. Yeah, I mean, as far as I'm aware, there have not been any, like, contemporary events uh-huh. where one would would consider him that however yep. you never know how how much people change yeah in in his in his past it, this is like one of the the big ones is he was running from police and asked i believe a vietnamese man i don't i don't remember but asked a vietnamese man or a, a southeast asian person to help him hide from the police of which the guy did, did. help him hide from the police uh-huh. and then he proceeded to beat him up and take his money yep so um while calling him a bunch of slurs and then yep. called him a bunch of slurs uh during the the court stuff and yep. it just continued to yep yeah. Not a good look, my dude. So Not Kylie a good didn't look. know about this, but I, I guess maybe that, that could just be like a a California and Massachusetts thing that everybody knows. I didn't. I mean, I grew up in Maine, so yeah. like this would not have any in any way, shape, or form been on my radar. Anywho, back to our anyway. real topic, Deer Island. Mini <laughs> <Yeah>. history. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so now on to the real topic at hand. On July 21st, 1999, two men who were working on the sewage tunnel some 400 feet below ground level died after a malfunction with their air supply. The tunnel, a nearly 10-mile-long feat of engineering, moves up to a billion gallons of treated wastewater on a, like in one day and, go, and does so without any pumps or electrical power. It relies solely on gravity, mm-hmm. which, again, I mean, it's a pretty impressive feat of engineering. Yeah, it's very cool. It's very cool. However, it did have a death toll. So. Yes. Mm. Um, at the very end, the tunnel chokes down and goes from a 24-foot-wide behemoth to a pipe that's just five feet in diameter. Mm-hmm. During the decade of construction and three other construction-related deaths, a series of safety plugs are put in place at the farthest end of the tunnel to protect the tunnel workers from an accidental influx of ocean water. You know, you don't want your workers to drown while they're digging your tunnel. Fair. Uh-huh. The problem was... Nobody had figured out how to remove the plugs once construction was finished. Mm. So now, in order for the treated water to be released into the ocean, someone had to figure out how to remove the plugs. Yep. I see how the problem forms here. mm -hmm. And as many major public infrastructure projects go, it was already over budget and past the deadline. I'm looking at you, Big Dig. <laughs> uh-huh. Boston has a great history with infrastructure projects. Nothing I... is ever on time and nothing is actually at budget. <laughs> or safe. Or That's a different problem. It, but it's yes, still it's part still of the true. same thing. <laughs> it's still true. Anyway, so um, Neil Switty a writer for the Boston Globe at the time and author of the book Trapped Under the Sea, One Engineering Marvel, Five Men, and a Disaster Ten Miles into the Darkness, said that because of these pressures, there was an enormous amount of infighting between contractors, subcontractors, and managers. Oh, yeah. No one wants to be responsible for doing the incredibly dangerous work that they're pretty sure will get someone killed. 
oops. Yeah. And I mean, the other, like, they're all like, not even like the logistics of doing the work. They're all like, we don't have money to do this thing with. We need to do it as quick as we can and as cheaply as we can. Mm -hmm. Because we're already between the different subcontractors, like no one wanted to go and do it. Of course, they're going to be like, actually, it was the concrete people's job. Actually, it was the digger's job. Actually, it was the welder's job. Like, no one's going to want that responsibility. Right. Um, so to save themselves from their own lack of foresight, the powers that be decided to hire a team of commercial divers who would go into the tunnel, travel to the far end, and then remove the safety plugs. Seems mm-hmm. easy, right? Uh, no. No. <laughs> it doesn't. It's good, because it's not. <laughs> it's not even a little easy. But haste and bad planning led to more misjudgments. After all, it wouldn't be a disaster story if there weren't any misjudgments. Uh-huh. Now, would it? At this point in the tunnel's construction, all life support equipment had been removed. So the oxygen, the lighting, and the transportation systems that were in place for, you know, the 10-mile trek. Mm-hmm. Yeah, had... they, they are unnecessary for poop. Correct, yes. Yep. But considering we still have these plugs in place, which someone is going to have to go in and get, to me, it seems a little hasty to have already removed said thing. Well, remember, they... They said they forgot about the plugs. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> they they got everything out and we're like, okay, let's go. And then they're like, oh no, why is nothing? Oh, the plugs. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. So to make matters worse, the ambient air in the tunnel lacked oxygen, duh, and was toxic. Yep. So even a couple of breaths would be enough to kill someone. Uh huh. Like all it would take is like, <sighs> and you'd probably be incapacitated or dead, mm-hmm. like very very quickly. Yeah, very very likely you would, uh, you know, lose functions Yep, and suffer for a while before you actually died. Uh-huh. Yep. Yeah. So, unfortunately, the location of the plugs in the tunnel was incredibly awkward and remote, um, and conventional diving air supply methods were not going to work. So, to solve the air issue, the contractors began looking for someone who could help solve this problem. Uh, Swidey stated in his book that, quote, the contractor found a couple of people who came and tur- toward the tunnel and said, sorry, no thanks. I don't care how much you're paying. It's not worth it. I can't do it safely. Uh-huh. Everyone knew this was a death trap. Uh-huh. And then one engineer rolled in and said, I can get you out of this jam, and I've got this innovative, cutting-edge plan to do it. Famous last words, to Very be much honest. so. Yeah. So down into the tunnel, the diving team went, taking two converted Humvees, one towing the other one backwards because... There was not enough room in the tunnel to even open the doors of the cars all the way, let alone turn one around. So the plan was to take one down, driving forward, and, then and take the back. other one back in the other direction. Yeah, yep. when it was time to go. I mean, arguably, that might be the smartest thing they did. <laughs> yep. So two of the divers would stay in the Humvee, monitoring the breathing systems for all five, while three proceeded on foot using umbilicals, which were hoses that were connected to the main air supply. Now... I'm no diver or expert in any of this, but based on my minimal experience with garden hoses, I definitely would not want to trust something that is so easily, like, kinked and twisted with my life. Uh-huh. But, you know, maybe that's just us. To be fair, there are tubes that are specifically designed for oxygen life support. That's true. You're that right. That doesn't mean these people use them. Also true. But they exist. And to in in their defense, I don't know. I'm a, I would assume, and nothing in my research says that they use anything that was not for those hoses yep. intended for, for diving and supplying oxygen, but you never know. So, unfortunately for the divers, the experimental breathing system failed. 
While the three-man team was crawling around in the narrow pipes and had managed to get a couple of the plugs removed, the foreman noticed that their umbilicals were getting tangled, and he instructed his team to sort those out before they continued doing the rest of the plugs. Yep, typically happens when you go from something that can hold a Humvee to single file and you have three people. Uh-huh. Because that's all the room there was, was yep. for single file. Yep. Um, so it's at this point that the foreman reportedly saw one of his team members on the ground, which is not where they were supposed to be, with the other quickly collapsing after him. So he quickly turned on a safety valve that would switch the divers to a backup oxygen system. So, like, they had the main one and then they had a backup one in case of emergency. Um, he managed to get a hold of the two divers who were in the Humvee to check on the percentage of oxygen, which required one of them to actually physically get out of the vehicle and check the valves and then come back in and tell him what he found. Not the best setup. No. So for anyone who doesn't know, our oxygen is not 100% oxygen. It's more like 21% or something like that. It's mostly nitrogen. Yes. Um, and if it goes too much higher or too much lower than 21% oxygen, bad things happen. So the diver who checked the levels comes back with the horrifying report of 8.9%. Ah, and then the line, enough. And then the line goes dead. Ah. Yeah. Not great. The three divers on foot managed to make it out alive. The two in the Humvee did not. The three survivors risked their lives further by bringing the bodies of their fallen team members back to the surface. So after this tragedy, the head of the MWRA pulled all the parties together and took the issue of money off the table, which arguably they should have done before. Uh-huh. So with more room to think creatively, a team of engineers figured out a way to get breathable air back into the tunnels, and then the plugs were easily removed. Within two days, the tunnel was operational, and the transformation of Boston Harbor was allowed to begin. There's a memorial on Deer Island now, as well as a memorial uh, benches along the path that rings the island mm -hmm. to Billy Juice and Tim Nordine, who were the two men who died in the accident. So what exactly happened? State troopers and OSHA were sent to investigate. Upon examining the Humvee and the breathing system, detectives found the system itself to be incredibly complicated, yet seemingly completely jerry-rigged. Uh-huh. That's gas what happens when you don't have money. Uh-huh. The gas cylinders were old and rusty. The manifolds where the various hoses met were made of plywood, which it should not be made of ply plywood. What? Mm-hmm. How do you do that? I don't know. I, I'm an engineer. <laughs> I don't know how you would do that. That's not reliable in any way. There are much better materials to do that with than plywood. Yeah, but probably not many that are cheaper. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, okay, so the manifolds where the various hoses met were made of plywood. And the quarter turn valves were all just labeled with pieces of tape. I mean, that happens. Yeah, but like also, I'm very familiar with tape. They f it falls off all the time. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, whoops. So other experts were then brought in to examine the system, including a safety manager from Air Gas Northeast, which was the company that had supplied the tanks of liquid gas for the mission. Mm -hmm. He identified numerous safety issues, including the valves all bumped up against each other and the disabled interior dome lights in the Humvee, which had been intended to help conserve battery power in the car, but had instead made it much harder for the divers to be able to monitor the gas mixer and accurately note the levels. He also noted the process for measuring the oxygen content of the breathing air was unreliable, which is not good, and the access to the backup air supplies was poor. He also informed the detectives that no one had ever informed his company that the liquid gas was going to be used to supply breathing air for humans. Oh. Both company policy and industry practice prohibited this use of liquid gas. It would be far too risky. Yeah. 
Other revelations came to light during the investigation, including the fact that the MAP Mix 9000, the machine the divers had been given to blend the liquid oxygen and liquid nitrogen to make their breathing air, was designed for industrial uses like packaging supermarket burritos or cheese and had never been intended to, you know, make air for humans. Right. It's literally there just for, like, suction or whatever vacuum purposes they needed it, like industrial equipment movement. Yep. So this was not its intended use in any way, shape, or form. So this evidence and more convinced the investigators that this had not been an unforeseeable accident. Ultimately, OSHA handed out the punishments for this disaster. In 2000, OSHA cited Norwesco Marine, which was an underwater diving contractor based in Spokane, Washington, which had been contracted to remove the plugs and proposed a $200,000 fine and penalties for two willful and 11 serious violations. Black Dog Divers, a Portsmouth, New Hampshire diving contractor that was providing subcontract labor to Norwesco, faced $25,400 in proposed penalties for 13 serious violations. Kiwit Atkinson Kenny, JV of Winthrop, Uh, Massachusetts, the general contractor for the Outfall Tunnel Project, faced $91,000 in proposed penalties for one willful and three serious violations. And the fourth employer, ICF Kaiser Engineers of Massachusetts, um, also based out of Winthrop, was a project's construction manager and faced $91,000 in proposed penalties for one willful and also three serious violations. So OSHA essentially was in charge of handing out the, like, penalty for this, which Yep. Basically boiled down to, like, fines, yep. um, unfortunately. Um, so that is the story of the Deer Island Tunnel disaster. And if anyone wants to know more about all of this, you can check out the book Trapped Under the Sea, One Engineering Marvel, Five Men, and a Disaster 10 Miles into the Darkness by Neil Swidey. Yeah, nice. Cool. Uh, awful. It's depressing, right? <laughs> yeah. What's more depressing is the reason that like I want to get into podcasting and voice acting and all that stuff is because I've worked for a bunch of different engineering companies that work in a bunch of different industries. Mm-hmm. And you have to remember, like this is back in 99, mm-hmm. where there wasn't nearly as much pressure as there is today to be extremely greedy and penny pinching. Uh-huh. Like, it's only been exponential since then. Yeah. Every industry I've worked in has not cared about what happens to the user. Yeah. Which is basic company practice 101. All of these companies have audits that, you know, right now I'm a quality, a quality engineer. So, like, my job is to make sure that the companies that I work for pass these audits. Mm-hmm. And it's just like I I thought working for weapons and stuff like that would have been my ethics class, you know, in in college. And it's like, oh, you know, if you're going to work on weapons, like you have to know weapons are made to do something bad. Like Mm -hmm. you're not doing the thing bad, but they're they're explicitly made for bad. That's what I assumed engineering ethics would be. But it's a lot more of this stuff. Yeah, it's a it's. Every day, every single company is always motivated by the pennies and dimes Mm -hmm. to cut safety corners always. Yep. Safety is the first thing to get cut always. Yeah. So the morals of being part of any sort of infrastructure, engineering, industrial company is you know that every choice that you make is motivated by how much safety or how many people need to be hurt or dead 
before we can't consider this viable. Yeah. It's, it's never, let's make it so that nobody becomes hurt or dead. It's where is it's the It's where's bar. the line. Yeah, where is the line for how many people we consider acceptable to be injured or killed? And that is true of every industry I've worked in. Yep. I don't want to be in it anymore. Fair <laughs> enough, sweetie. Fair enough. Anyways. I don't blame you. Now that we've thoroughly depressed everybody. Yeah, I mean, just a warning if anybody is looking to get into, like, engineering <laughs> and, you know, was all starry-eyed like me being like, oh, I'm going to work on prosthetics and or, like, I'm going to make things that go into space. And it's like every industry is just trying to r- reduce the number or technically maximize the number of people that they harm or kill as long as it suits a bottom dollar. Yeah. And I mean... Theoretically, that isn't like the like full on intention, but it's absolutely the result. It's so little considered that I wouldn't dis. I wouldn't say that it's not the intention. Oh boy, the it's it's such a small consideration in the eyes of the people who run every company that you know, unless it's a mom and pop shop. That it, I would consider it intentional. They go into making product knowing that for cheaper, they can harm a certain amount of people before it's a problem for them. This is de- this is very depressing. I'm going to go in a corner and cry later. So <laughs> Yeah, so if anyone wants to help me get out of engineering. <laughs> Here we uh, go. We can, uh, we can, we're, we have some fun facts coming up next. Yes. Uh, but we have our call to action. And Here's... in the call to action is where you can help me not do this for a living. This is where Jonathan's desperate plea for money comes Please. in. Please get me out of engineering. I can't do it. <laughs> it's morally wrong, the money that I make. I teach children. So, yeah, please, I'm good. <laughs> please, please help me make more morally conscious money. I would love it. Yeah, making something that arguably isn't going to injure anyone uh-huh. ever. Uh huh. Except for maybe your emotions in this episode. I hope so. so. I, I our goal is so. to make people feel, regardless for of good what or that bad. Is. <laughs> We're going to make you feel something. It's the Andy Kaufman way. <laughs> Anyway, okay. Okay. <laughs> where can, else can they find us? <laughs> they can find us at halfwitpodcast.com. That's where you can find everything about us. We have a merch tab. We have a support us tab. We have mm-hmm. community tabs that bring you to things like our Discord. Join our um, Discord. Join our Discord. There Come is back a, to us. There is a puzzle if anyone finds themselves to be yes. a good sleuth on our homepage for a new project that I've been working on with Jonathan, an artist friend of mine. Jonathan is very proud of his little, his little cryptic puzzle. Someone solved it. I know. We talked about it on... The Failed Crits podcast. Yes, yeah. Um, but yeah, someone solved our little puzzle. And I one. Be- one. One person so far. I'll have to check on that, see if the number's gone up. Will you be number two? Yeah. Mm. <laughs> so yeah, there's things like our, if you go to support or donate or I forget what we call the tab, but it's, uh, it's a Ko-Fi page, so you can go to the Ko-Fi yep. and donate. I believe we just have Buzzsprout subscriptions just active. So if you go on the like our regular halfwit-history.com, mm-hmm. there should be a little support button. Yeah. And that is, I mean, it's not like the ideal way to get us money because Buzzsprout does take a cut. Yeah. Whereas Ko-Fi does not. Yes. But if that's the easiest way for you to go help support it. us, please. We appreciate anything and everything. <laughs> yes. And we understand that Ko-Fi is a little harder because you have to like have a login and all that stuff. But Yeah. Man. Yeah, but I mean, arguably, it's probably, I think it's just as difficult as Patreon because you oh, still yeah, have to log in with Patreon. with Patreon. So it's yeah. the same deal. You just have to have 
a different login. Yeah. Use the same one. It'll be fine. Anyways, that's enough. I think uh, we just need to thank the fishermen for the use of our theme song, Another Day, that you can find a link to their SoundCloud down in our show notes. We put lots of links in our show notes. Go look at them. Yes. Check them out. Yeah. It is time for fun facts. Fun facts. Fun facts. Did a little link. I hope the fun facts are actually fun this time because <laughs> well, this is a depressing episode. <laughs> I'm definitely... Oh, no. <laughs> I thought I was definitely going to pick one of them. <laughs> oh. I, picked, I pick all the fun facts and then I let him pick from them. What the <laughs> heck? These are all cool. Uh, what What are we at time-wise? Because we could probably do a couple of them because I know this episode was shorter. No, we have to save some of them for fun facts next year. Uh, well, that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Oh, my God. Let's just, so like there's there's two about anime. There's one that's about Portuguese people. There's a, an, another. One, oh, this one is the one that Kylie will probably take, so I won't say it. And then there's one about uh, Union Act and stuff like that. So all very fun and relevant to us right now. Anyways, Which is funny because the fun facts for the next episode are not very fun. Oh no! <laughs> it's L- like this week used all of the good items. <laughs> well, we're going to talk about how on July 22nd of 1997, One Piece, the world's best-selling manga and comic series written and illustrated by Ichiro Oda, first appears serialized in the weekly Shonen Jump in Japan. Nice. We've just caught up with Netflix on the dub. Yes. Because One Piece is not enough of a, like, making me think show that I'm willing to watch it with subtitles. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it it's uh you know you hear a lot of people talk about filler when you talk about these big shonen manga and anime but one piece is like in an interesting spot where it doesn't really have filler it just elongates episodes so like there's just really long fight scenes that sometimes are hard to get through but like when they actually get to their real storytelling points it's like really poignant they do a really good job at doing it yeah. and of course i would love it because it's all a, it's almost exclusively about taking down the government and having a fun time doing it so <laughs> yo ho yo ho <laughs> just yep. bawling just constant crying for like 3 episodes straight and i'm just sitting there like how dare this goofy Very anime silly. make me cry uh-huh. for real for I was thoroughly people who offended. do know about one piece and are caught up on it etc we just finished Thriller Bark. <sighs> anyway. Anywho, right. what is your fun fact out of that list of many fun facts? So I know which one you thought I was going to do, but I cannot for the life of me pronounce the name. So <laughs> Kylie's kryptonite is names. It, dude, it really is. It, it really is. Um, so I'm going to go with July 20th of 2001. Spirited Away, written and directed by Hi. 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 I broke. I'm going to go for the name I can pronounce. (laughs) Can you say it for me? Hayao Miyazaki. Okay, so yes, on July 20th of 2001, Spirited Away, written and directed by Hayao Miyazaki, is released in Japan, and it won the Academy Award for Best Animated Feature in 2003. I think it was the first anime to win an Academy Award, and it may have been the first animated feature to win an award like that. I think it was the first anime. I don't think it was the first animated because I think Disney had won awards before. What was the award for? I mean, what was the award again? The Academy Award for Best Animated Feature. 
I don't know that Disney did win an Academy Award before that. And this is the part of the show where we both jump on our phones and Google. The first Academy Award for Best Animated Feature was Shrek. What? What year did Spirited Away win? 2003. Literally two years after Shrek. Well then, the more you know. Okay. That was a fun fact. That was a fun fact. All right. Well, anyways, thank you all for listening. We hope you enjoyed. And as always, I'm your halfwit. And I'm your historian. And we hope you listen next time. Bye. Since you've gone.